everybody. Feels like it's been a long time. I think it's been over a week and I don't think I've ever taken this long of a break before, so I hope I remember how to do this. This is the Capo Podcast. It is April 25th today and I'm probably going to release this tonight, so maybe it'll be April 25th when you hear it. Um, I'm going to do a new episode today in the same vein as last episode when we did the Odyssey. But before I get into it, I want to talk about the the major news today, which was that Elon Musk bought Twitter, which I think is awesome. Uh, it's yet to be seen how awesome it's going to be, but I've never been someone who's had a Twitter, and as soon as I saw that Elon Musk bought it, I went and made myself a Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter and be the very first one, probably... Uh, you can find me on Twitter now, and it'll be at Engelman Samuel. So, anyways, follow me on Twitter. It'll, it'll be fun. But, this is not related to Twitter. This is the the educational, kind of highbrow capo podcast that we're going to do today. And we did the Greeks last time. We did uh, Homer. And so, what I want to do this time... Because the, the foundations of Western civilization run through Greece, and then they run through Rome, and then they run through uh, Europe, and especially through England. And so what I, what I want to do today is a historical drama about Rome written by an Englishman in 1600. And that would be Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. So this podcast will be everything you need to know about Julius Caesar without having to read the play. Because as everyone knows, and as I found out being a teacher, everyone hates Shakespeare. And I think everybody hates it because it's hard to understand, and they make you read it when you're in high school, and everybody hates it. And I'll be honest, I hated Shakespeare too when I was in high school. I didn't understand it very well. And it wasn't until I started teaching and rereading all this Shakespeare stuff that I realized that uh, Shakespeare was actually brilliant and great and important. And there's a, there's a reason we learn it. There are so many lessons to be learned from Shakespeare. And I think Julius Caesar is a great kind of introduction to Shakespeare. Because in school you read Romeo and Juliet which I'm not saying it sucks, but uh, it's my least favorite one that we read in school. And Julius Caesar is probably my favorite. If it's not my favorite, it's at least my second favorite. But um, And I like it because I'm into politics. And so Julius Caesar was the one, when I was rereading Shakespeare as a teacher, I immediately understood Julius Caesar 100% because I'm I'm into politics. I pay attention to politics. Politics are interesting to me and everything Literally everything that you need to know about politics. You can learn from Julius Caesar And so what I want to start with is just a quote that kind of uh, will set the tone for the play I'm not going to read a lot of Shakespeare quotes because it's hard, I think, for people to understand what they're saying. And when I teach that in school, I have to stop every paragraph and explain what was just said to the students so they can follow the story. And I don't want to fall into that trap on the podcast because I think that that would be, it would be fun for me, but it would probably be boring for you. 
So I won't do too much. I'll probably throw in one or two quotes as we go, but not very many. But this first one I think is important. And this first one is said by Cassius, who is a character in the play, and he is kind of the godfather of the plot to assassinate Julius Caesar. And at one point in the play, early in the play, he says to Brutus this line. He says, Why should Caesar be a tyrant then? Poor man. I know he would not be a wolf, but that he sees the Romans are but sheep. He were no lion, were not the Romans hinds. Those that would haste will make a mighty fire, begin with weak straws. What trash is Rome? What rubbish and what offal, when it serves for the base matter to illuminate so vile a thing as Caesar? Now, what Cassius is saying here is that uh, it's, it's not Caesar who he kind of detests. It is actually the Roman people. And he views Rome as this, this place that has lost its way and its culture. Another point in the play, he says that the Romans have, have changed and they have become ruled by their mother's hearts and that they are womanish and they're no longer men. And the reason he says this is because Cassius sees Julius Caesar as a rising tyrant that the Roman people are cheering. He sees him as a populist and not somebody who actually believes in the Roman Republic as it is. Now, the play itself was written by Shakespeare, 1600, and it tells the story of the famous assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And then it follows what happened after that in Rome, the civil war and the and the bloodshed and the war. And this event culminated in the the collapse of the Roman Republic. For after this event, Rome went from being a republic to being a dictatorship effectively under the under the Caesars. And there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in here as far as kind of idealist Republican ideas um, when it comes to characters like Cassius and Brutus. They deeply, deeply believe in the Roman Republic, and they are serious patriots. And that is something that kind of gets glossed over, I think, a lot by, by people who read it because they don't quite know what they should be looking for. All right. Um, when, when we read this in school... This one is a good study of why we teach Shakespeare, and it's because kids have a very shallow and poor understanding of how much, and not just kids, adults are this way too, there's a shallow understanding of how much Caesar has actually influenced the culture and the civilization that we live in. Um, the way we think of history, the way we think of morality, the big questions we ask ourselves, Shakespeare was a massive influence on all of that. And there's a reason why. For a lot of your ancestors, there's not a whole lot to read in English. Nowadays we have access to like millions upon millions of books, and we don't even read those. The quantity of modern literature and all new entertainment has really washed out the quality 
of what literature has always meant, of what uh, what it was supposed to be. Now, back in the day, there was a couple things that pretty much everyone with a Western education read. And those things were the Bible and Shakespeare. It's not like there was nothing else. There was. There was. There was a lot of other stuff. Uh, just a few examples would be Milton and Paradise Lost. And then we read the Odyssey, or we talked about the Odyssey last time, and the Iliad. And then there was also Enlightenment thinkers like Adam Smith and John Locke, who's the father of classical liberalism, and Edmund Burke, who is the father of uh, conservatism, and Immanuel Kant and Friedrich Nietzsche. Um... But those guys were, a lot of those guys were philosophers. Uh, Adam Smith was an economist. Uh, a very, very few people had access to this giant library of all the famous Enlightenment writings of Western civilization. But everyone had read the Bible and at least some Shakespeare. It was on everybody's bookshelf. Um, if, if two educated people were talking and one of them made a Shakespeare reference the other would get the reference and immediately know what the first guy was talking about. The same way that people today would get pop culture, pop culture references or like meme references. Um, and that's because everyone read it and it was the stuff that shaped the way we thought collectively. And when Caesar is assassinated in Shakespeare's play, one of the characters shouts, liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. And this hardens into a moral insight in the West of death to tyranny. This is a very kind of age of revolution idea, enlightenment idea. Um, you really see this mindset in America and in the Founding Fathers. In Latin, the famous phrase is sic semper tyrannis. And it means the same thing. It means thus always to tyrants, death to tyrants. And it's, uh, it's attributed to what Brutus supposedly said after he and the others killed Caesar. So, basically Shakespeare dramatizes this historical event. And you see a man standing over Caesar with a bloody knife. And this transforms over hundreds of years into our Western viewpoint. I mean... For crying out loud, the, the state motto of Virginia, one of the first American colonies, is Sic Semper Tyrannus. When John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln in the head, he dove from the balcony onto the stage and he shouted, you guessed it, he shouted Sic Semper Tyrannus. Now why did he do that? Well, he did it because he viewed Abraham Lincoln as a Caesar figure. A lot of people in the South did during the Civil War. And why did they think that? Well, Lincoln did force a draft, he did invade the South, and he suspended the Constitution. But, because of his assassination, how is he viewed by most Americans? Because of the assassination of Caesar, how was Caesar viewed afterward by most of the Romans? Well, you're going to find out in this play. And uh, this begs the question, why didn't John Wilkes Booth learn anything from reading Shakespeare? And that's probably because he was an actor, and actors are almost always vain, self-important morons. So there is that. Now, about fiction and drama. Shakespeare wrote fiction, and fiction has always interested us as humans. It's not because fiction means something that isn't true. It's because fiction, real important fiction, is about distilled truth. 
fiction is even more real than reality in this way, in like a philosophical way. In a, in a historical sense, for example, once people have been able to stand back and study something that they went through and write about it, they are able to boil things down to the real and important truths that they learned. And this is why fictional stories are more impactful and usually more important than history books or political books. And that kind of hurts me to say because I my degree is in history and I kind of am an amateur historian. But uh, fiction is what influences art and culture. And art and culture are what influences civilization. Do you want proof, I guess? Um, in school, in you know high school, you're not going to read Edward Gibbon's very famous and gigantic volume of books titled The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. This is arguably the most famous and important history book in Western civilization. But you're not going to read it in school. What you real, will read, though, you will read Shakespeare by Julius Caesar if your English teacher doesn't suck and isn't an idiot because this is an important play. So, this means what 99% of people since 1776 know about the rise and fall of Rome doesn't come from Gibbon, it comes from Shakespeare. Gibbon shaped and influenced a small handful of historians, and Shakespeare shaped and influenced basically everyone else. Now, that's the importance of the play. That's why we learn about the play. Now let's get into the, the plot line of the play. So first, <clears throat> let's meet the characters of the play. And there are several, this is a very character-driven play. And each of the characters is, is driven by certain beliefs and kind of weaknesses like ambition or pride or certain other things. Now, first up, I'm going to start with, uh, I mean, you would think I'm going to start with Julius Caesar, but I'm not. I'm going to start with Cassius because Cassius is the father of the plot to assassinate Caesar. And Cassius is a true believer in the Roman Republic. He is a, I guess you would call him a patriot. Um, some people in the play, Caesar especially, Caesar does not trust him right off the bat because he he doesn't like all the things the other Romans like. He doesn't like to go to the Colosseum. He doesn't like to go to the chariot races. He is not fat and lazy like the other senators. And he is somebody who is very, very serious about the Roman Republic. Um, next up is his, the guy he's trying to get on board, which is Brutus. Now, Brutus is the altruist hero of the play. He, like Cassius, is a true believer in the Roman Republic. Uh, unlike Cassius, Brutus is a friend to Julius Caesar. About everything Brutus has, he has because of Caesar. But Brutus does not want Caesar to rise to this tyrant. Now, the difference in Brutus and Cassius is that Brutus is kind of this altruist who who only believes in doing what is right. He is chivalrous. He is honorable. He kind of 
he abides by these very almost like an English style chivalric romantic knight's code. And Cassius is a little more pragmatic. He's not a complete altruist. He's okay with lying. He's okay with uh, kind of playing the system in order to in order to save Rome or save the Roman Republic. So Brutus and Cassius kind of butt heads a little, but they are kind of teammates in this plan, this plot to kill Caesar. So that brings us to Caesar. And Julius Caesar wants to be king. He wants to be the ruler of Rome. Um, and he, it, because he is, he's very famous, he's very accomplished, everybody in Rome loves him, but he is kind of a vain and, and prideful guy. And he's ambitious. He wants to be crowned. Uh, his buddy is Mark Antony. And at the beginning of the play, the, the vibe that you get from Mark Antony is that he is kind of this party boy. He's a reveler. He's a celebrity status type person. He races in the chariot races. Everybody really likes him. But uh, Cassius doesn't trust him from the very beginning. Everybody else just thinks Mark Antony is kind of an unserious person. Cassius views him as a very kind of existential threat. Um, more on that later. And then uh, there's a few other, but those are the four main ones I want to introduce before we before we get to them. That way you kind of know what's driving them already. So the play opens up, uh, Act 1, Scene 1, on a street in Rome. And there are these two guys who are... Uh, political guys. They're not senators, but they're, I don't know, a step below senators. And they are trying to make all the people who have come out to throw this big party for Caesar, they're trying to make them all go home. Because there's just been a civil war, and Caesar has defeated his enemy, whose name is Pompey. And these guys were supporters of Pompey, and they are out in the streets trying to make everybody go home. They're tearing down the posters of Caesar, and they're trying to make this homecoming not seem so glorious. And they trade words with common people on the street, and it's abundantly clear that the common people love Caesar, and they dislike these guys. And the common people have kind of a point, because by this point in the Roman Republic, most of the Senate... And the government itself is bloated and corrupt. And this is why Caesar gains so much traction, because the people see him as a way to kind of fix their problems through kind of a strong man, uh, iron-fisted approach. So these two guys, Flavius and Marullus, they run off the, the uh, revelers and the partiers in the street, and they send them home. And then they start tearing down the the posters of Caesar. And then we go to scene, scene two. And scene two, enter Caesar into Rome. And he is followed by this whole kind of cast of people and his wife, and they are headed to the, to the chariot race. And uh, Caesar talks back and forth with his wife and with some other senators, and he talks a lot to Mark Antony, who is going to race that day in the 
in the chariot race and uh, the, everybody's getting ready for this big race and they talk and talk and uh, there's a this part really isn't all that important to the story but there is a soothsayer this kind of weird homeless guy that's walking down the street and he yells to Caesar to beware the Ides of March which is the middle of March March 15th uh, and he's it's he's warning Caesar because he has like a, the foresight to know that something bad is going to happen but he kind of gets like pushed to the side as like oh he's a he's a crazy man just just let him let him pass and then everybody exits and goes to the race except for Brutus and Cassius and Cassius and Brutus stay behind to talk and Cassius and Brutus talk about this thing that is coming and they both know it Caesar is going to be kind of offered a crown and everybody kind of knows it's going to happen and Cassius is trying to feel Brutus out and see if Brutus wants this to happen because he knows that that Brutus is kind of Caesar's friend but he also knows Brutus is a true believer in the Roman Republic so he pulls Brutus aside and they talk for a while and he he finally gets out of Brutus that Brutus does not want to see Caesar crowned a king uh, and Cassius is explaining to Brutus that he doesn't want to see that either and so they're of the same mind and Cassius is kind of offering a some sort of partnership here and Brutus doesn't know why but he understands it's a political alliance and he understands it's a dangerous political alliance and Brutus understands that uh, Cassius has it's not that he has a shady reputation or a bad reputation but he does know that Cassius is kind of slick and knows how to use people for his ends, even if Brutus kind of agrees with his ends. Um, while they're talking, off kind of off stage, there is shouting and kind of like cheering from the stands, and they keep wondering what it is. And there's three shouts, and as they talk, and then finally, uh, in comes. Caesar and the rest again and they are headed away from the stadium and everybody's uh, mood is kind of weird as they come by and they wonder what uh, they wonder what is going on and Cassius says hey when they come by grab Casca by the sleeve and Casca will tell us what has happened now Casca is another senator and Casca is going to also be a co-conspirator with Cassius and uh, Brutus. So they pull Casca aside and they ask him what has happened. And Casca, in this very kind of dry, sarcastic way, explains what has just transpired. And he is, he's kind of revolted by it because he, like, like Brutus and like Cassius, he understands that everything that just happened was all political theater and none of it was true because what happened was Caesar was offered a crown and when he was offered a crown the people all cheered for him and Casca said that the first time Caesar put the crown away meaning they offered it to him and he, he refused it he said no I, I can't be 
you know, I can't take this crown, I can't become Caesar. And the people respond by kind of like, oh, look how, look how wonderful the Caesar guy is. He doesn't want to be king, and that's why he definitely needs to be king. So they offer him the crown again, and they offer him the crown again, and all three times, Caesar refuses the crown. But Casca explains that from where he's standing and from what he saw, it looks, it looks to him like all an act. Because he says, if I was reading it right, Caesar was very loath to lay his hands off the crown, meaning like he was putting it away begrudgingly, and because he wants he wanted to appear to the people to be kind of this this man that's above everyone else uh which shows you right off the bat that caesar is an intelligent guy who knows how to p- play the political game he knows if he jumps at the crown the people are he's not going to have a good appearance if he pretends like he doesn't want it then the people are going to think he's somebody who deserves that power um so casca and Cassius and Brutus talk a little bit, and then uh, Casca goes on his way. Right before he does, Cassius asks him if Cicero said anything. And Cicero is a very famous uh, Roman senator. I think I've talked about him before on the podcast. He's a very famous senator and philosopher. He talked a lot about natural law and... uh, he, he got a lot of his beliefs from Plato, and he was a great student of the Greeks. And so he's a very important person in Rome at the time, probably the most famous philosopher in Rome. And Cassius asks if he said anything, and Casca says, like, he did, but it was kind of all in code, and it didn't mean anything to him. Like, he wasn't in on it, so he didn't know, he didn't know what Cicero was saying because it was meant to only be understood by people very close to Cicero. And then, uh, finally, Casca leaves, and when he does, he warns them. He says, uh, be careful, basically, because Marullus and Flavius, those guys that were pulling down the, the Caesar kind of posters in Act 1, he tells Cassius and Brutus that those two have been murdered. They've been assassinated. They've been put to silence, as he says. And this is a warning like, hey, things are happening and Caesar is already starting to move on his political enemies. Uh, so they they part their ways and Cassius, after Brutus leaves, Cassius gives a soliloquy and he explains his plan. And Cassius's plan is to write a whole bunch of letters that appear to have come from a whole bunch of different people but he's going to write them all himself. And he's going to send them all to Brutus to make it appear as if this movement to stop Caesar is much larger than it is. And this is what I mean by like Cassius is very pragmatic and he is willing to lie and bend the truth in order to achieve his ends. And he does this by, if I'm going to get Brutus on board, I need to make it look like there's more people who want to bring Caesar down than just me and a couple others. And so then they go their separate ways. And scene three, everything fast forwards. And it is the, it is the night before it is 
March 14th, and there is this giant thunder and lightning storm. And the characters are walking through the streets of Rome, and there are all these signs and wonders that are going on. There's there's kind of like flames falling from the sky and ghosts walking around, and a lion is seen on the, the Senate grounds. And all of it, Casca takes it all as like a, a bad omen. And then uh, when you see him, he's talking to Cicero, and he's he's talking to Cicero about these things that he has seen. And Cicero is not on board yet with this whole assassination attempt. Cicero hasn't been brought into the circle yet. They're trying to feel Cicero out. And then Cicero and Casca talk, and then Cicero leaves, and then Cassius shows up. And Cassius, unlike Casca, he views all the things that have happened tonight as a as a good omen. He he views it as something that is is good for them because all of this all of this lightning and ghosts and signs are are proof that something very big is about to happen and Cassius views it as something good for Romans. And uh I'll just read this part by Cassius. I said I wasn't going to read a lot, but I will read this. This is something he says to Casca uh, at that night. He says, For Romans now have thews and limbs like their ancestors, but woe the while our fathers' minds are dead, and we are governed with our mother's spirits. Our yoke and sufferance show us womanish. And this is Casca again. No, Cassius again explaining that Rome has become fat and happy and has forgotten the purpose of the Republic. Because the Roman Republic is founded on this idea of getting rid of kings. And that's how the Roman Republic is, is formed. And Brutus's ancestors are a big part of this. They're the ones that killed the kings and ran them out of Rome and formed the Republic. And Cassius is saying Rome has forgotten about all that. Rome has forgotten its foundations. Rome has forgotten its its purpose, and it's become lost. And this is where he says the, the Romans are sheep now. Rome is trash. Rome is rubbish um, because it is, it is illuminating this thing that we're calling Caesar, this tyrant, this king. And he, he looks at this as Rome being at fault. So Cassius talks to Casca, and then enter another conspirator named Cinna, and they talk to Cinna for a while, um, and they're all kind of coming to coming to the end here, and they they still haven't got Brutus a hundred percent on board, but he's almost there, and so that's what uh, that's Cassius's final goal is to get Brutus on board so they can go ahead with this assassination, because he thinks if he can get Brutus on board. The, the people of Rome will view this favorably. So, next they go to Brutus's house, and all the conspirators are there, and Brutus is finally on board. So they start to hammer out the details of the assassination, because it's become clear to all of them that the only answer to this problem is that Caesar must die. And so they're hammering out the details, and they're trying to figure out if they should include anyone else in the, in the plot. 
and Cassius suggests that they bring Cicero in. And he suggests this because Cicero is very famous for being the pro-republic. He is somebody with these old Greek ideas of natural rights and kind of natural law, and he is very, very well-liked by everyone. And he's an older man, and he thinks that his, his status will give them some standing. Uh, and Casca agrees, and a couple other guys agree, but Brutus disagrees. And Brutus says that Cicero will will not join anything that he's not in charge of. And Cassius, because he needs Brutus, he relents and says, okay, we will leave him out then. And the next thing to be sorted out is, is Caesar the only one we're going to kill? And this is an important point. Cassius says, I think we should also kill Mark Antony. When we kill Caesar, when we assassinate Caesar, we also need to assassinate Mark Antony because if we don't, he says, we shall find of him a shrewd contriver. This is where Cassius thinks, or Cassius knows, that Mark Antony is not just a dumb kind of celebrity. He is somebody who is shrewd and he is somebody that is smart. But Brutus, again, disagrees with Cassius, and he thinks that if they kill Mark Antony, they will seem too bloody and too, too kind of trigger happy. Um, they say, Brutus says we should only kill Caesar. Uh, we, we want to be sacrificers, not butchers. And he says, the, the only thing we're trying to stop is Caesar, so Caesar is the only one we need to kill. And then Cassius doesn't just relent this point. He, he, he throws it back at Brutus and he says, I fear him. Like, I, I do not think it will be good if Mark Antony is allowed to, to live. He's going to come back at us. And Brutus... And then one of the other conspirators both say that, like, no, uh, Brutus says uh, he is given to sports, to wildness, and to much company. Meaning, like, he's he's just into sports and he's into partying and hanging out with his friends. He doesn't care that much about politics. And then Trebonius, another conspirator, says, let him not die, for he will live and laugh at this hereafter. He will. He thinks that they'll be friends afterwards. Um so Cassius finally relents again and says, okay, we won't kill Mark Antony. And then they hammer out the rest of the plan. And the plan is tomorrow at the Senate, they are going to, uh, Caesar is going to come to the Senate under the idea that he's going to be offered a crown by the Senate. And while he is there, they are going to assassinate him. And the next scene is... Brutus talking to his wife after everybody goes home, and she wants to know what's going on. She understands that there's something wrong, and Brutus kind of argues with her for a while, but he finally agrees to tell her, because Portia is somebody who she she says she's not like other women. She's not she's a she's a daughter of some famous uh, general, and she is the wife of the famous Brutus, and she. She views herself as somebody who is not just kind of a muling woman, and she is she can handle it. 
And so Brutus relents, and he, he tells her everything. Um, and, of course, she, she does pretty good. She is very nervous, and she is kind of at her wit's end when they all leave for the Senate the following day. Uh, now, the next morning, Caesar wakes up, or Caesar hasn't been sleeping very much, uh, and he's walking around, kind of, he has also heard kind of some stuff that's gone on the previous night, and his wife had terrible dreams where she dreamed that he had been murdered, and all signs point to bad news. And so Caesar at first says he's not going to go. He's going to, he's going to relent. Now, before he does this, Caesar kind of, kind of through his dialogue, shows you who he really is. And this is the important part because a lot of times Caesar is painted as like this, this victim, this great man who is this great leader who is a victim. But, uh, whether he was or whether he wasn't by historical standards, I, I'm not gonna, really going to argue with that. But it's clear that Shakespeare does not write him that way. In Shakespeare's play, Caesar is vain and full of pride and full of himself. And you can see it through his dialogue and the things he says. Um, one of his, his kind of famous line is that cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Um, I don't feel like he's, he doesn't fear death. Uh, he views himself as somebody who is above everyone else. Um, Caesar is not like other people. And this is all things that he's saying about himself. And he's almost talking about himself in the third person. And you see through this, that Caesar is just somebody who is beyond vain. Um, just super prideful. And so him and his wife go back and forth. His wife's name's Calpurnia. And they go back and forth until finally Caesar says, fine, I, I won't go. I'll stay home for your humor. Um, but then enter one of the conspirators, Decius. Now, Decius is the smooth talker. Decius is really good at, uh, at convincing Caesar to do things. And the way Decius does this shows you again who Caesar is. Um, Decius is able to flatter Caesar by telling Caesar that he's impossible to flatter. He tells Caesar, like, everybody that comes crawling to you and everybody that kind of, like, tries to flatter you and tries to fluff your ego, you just kind of brush them aside. And that's what I like about you so much. And this is hilarious and ironic because Caesar is extremely flattered by Decius saying that. It's like somebody saying, like, man, you really tell it like it is, and that's what I like about you. You're not fake at all. And then you take it as being, oh, my gosh, I'm so flattered. Like, that is the... <laughs> that's ironic, because that's what Decius does. He tells Caesar that, like, uh... He tells Caesar that if he doesn't go to the Senate, people might, uh... People might judge him badly. And he says that, uh... The Senate intends to give him a crown that day, and if he doesn't show up, they might change their mind. And then finally, Caesar says, How foolish do your fears seem now, Calpurnia? I am ashamed I did yield to them. Give me my robe, for I will go. And so Decius talks him in to going to the Senate. And they all go to the Senate. And uh, while they're there, 
um, they're kind of preparing to go up, and the plan is for one of them to approach Caesar and plead a case for his, I don't know, brother-in-law or something who has been exiled, and he's going to ask Caesar to allow this this family member to to come back out of exile. And so before they do, they have somebody kind of lead Mark Antony out of the room. And then this guy approaches and he asks Caesar, and who is the guy? Hold on. Let me let me go through my notes and see who the guy is. Um, it's one of the conspirators. I think it's Metellus. Um, let's say it's Metellus, even if that's wrong. He goes to Caesar and he, he's asking for for mercy for his brother-in-law or, or cousin or whatever it is. Uh, and Caesar responds by like, uh, he says, these couching and these lowly courtesies might fire the blood of ordinary men and turn preordinance and first decree into the law of children. Be not fond to think that Caesar bears such rebel blood that will be thawed from the true quality with which melts with melteth fools. Low crooked courtesies and base spaniel fawning, thy brother by decree is banished. If thou dost bend and pray and fawn for him, I spurn thee like a cur out of my way. No, Caesar doth not wrong, nor without cause will he be satisfied. This is Caesar saying, I never do anything wrong, and my my word is final, and I will not show mercy to your brother. Now, this is where Caesar starts to get confused, because up comes Brutus, and Brutus kneels beside Metellus, and he also asks for this thing. And Caesar gets kind of confused. He's like, you also, Brutus? You want you want this exile overturned? And then forward comes Cassius, and Cassius kneels and asks for pardon as well. And Caesar doesn't realize that they're all kind of advancing on him, and they're all advancing toward the throne, and they're all bowing and and asking for his mercy for this guy uh but caesar still says i he says and this is again you see who caesar is i could well be moved if i were as you if i could pray to move prayers would move me but i am as constant as the north star of whose true fixed and resting quality there is no fellow in the firmament caesar is comparing himself to the north star uh, so even right here at his death, he shows himself as this person who thinks he's above everyone else and just, he, he will not be moved. Um, and then finally they all kind of get around him, they get close, and Casca acts, asks, uh, no he doesn't ask, he says, speak hands for me, and Casca draws his knife and stabs Caesar. And then the next one stabs Caesar, and the next one stabs Caesar, and they all stab Caesar. And finally, uh, Brutus comes and he stabs Caesar last. And Caesar delivers his famous final words, et tu Brute, meaning, and you too, Brutus, or, and you also, Brutus. This is the famous, like, uh, treachery of the friend, because Brutus is this friend of Caesar, and he has played the part in this assassination and given him the final blow of the knife and Caesar is betrayed and then he dies. Once he dies, Cinna delivers the next famous line, liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. 
And Cassius says, liberty, freedom, and enfranchisement. And Brutus uh, says, ambition's debt is paid. So they all kind of say the same thing of, we have killed this man because he was a tyrant, and we are, we are giving Rome back its liberty and freedom. And Caesar was ambitious, and Caesar was doing this out of his, out of his pride and vanity and his want to be king. And the next thing they do is they decide they must they must go out to the to the public while they are still covered in Caesar's blood with their bloody knives and they must explain themselves. They must explain to the people why they have done this thing. And Brutus makes it very clear that they're not here to kill anyone else. This is this is all we're doing. We are just giving Rome back to the Romans. Now, Antony flees once he hears about what they've done to Caesar, but uh, they call for Antony to come back, and they promise Antony that he won't be harmed. And so Antony does come back, and he talks to Brutus and Cassius and Casca, and they explain to him, or they, they tell him they will explain to him why they did this thing. And first, let me find where we have. So first Brutus speaks and he says, here comes Antony, welcome Mark Antony. So Brutus welcomes Antony back. And this is while Caesar is still kind of lying dead on the floor. And Antony comes in, he is crying, just openly crying and weeping. And he goes to Caesar's side and he kind of laments over him and talks about how all of his glories and triumphs have, have come to this and now he's dead. And Brutus says, uh, oh, and then Anthony says, if you've called me back to kill me, go ahead and do it because there's no better time. And Brutus assures him that that's not what they mean to do. They are not going to kill him. He says that they, they want him to be part of Rome with them. They, they want this, uh, he says, our hearts see not, they are pitiful. Brutus says, our hearts are pitiful, and pity to the general wrong of Rome hath done this deed on Caesar. For your part, to your word, to your swords have leaden points, Mark Antony. Our arms and strength of malice and our hearts of brother's temper do receive you with all kind love, good thoughts, and reverence. Brutus is trying to kind of give him a hug. Cassius is the next one to talk, and Cassius says, Your voice shall be as strong as any man's in the disposing of new dignities. So Cassius immediately says, you are still going to have your political power. He's trying to appeal to Antony's political power, while Brutus is trying to appeal to Antony's heart. And this kind of seems like Cassius is a cold person, but it shows you, here in a second, it's going to show you that Cassius knows Antony better than the rest. So they talk for a while, and Antony says that if... He, he shakes all of their hands. He says, let each man render me his bloody hand and I'll shake it. I will, and this is a showing, he says, I'm showing you that I will not do you any harm um, and you will not do me any harm. Uh, and he, he says that they're either going to think that he's a coward or he's just trying to flatter them because he loved Caesar and he, 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 they all knew he loved Caesar. Um, but he tells them all that he's, he's, 
he's willing to hear them out and he's not going to uh he's not going to do anything to harm them uh and he goes on and on and on and finally Cassius kind of interrupts him and uh Cassius says, I blame you not for praising Caesar, but what compact mean you to have with us? Will you be pricked in number of our friends, or shall we on and not depend on you? Cassius is trying to put him on the spot and say, are, are you going to be with us, or are you going to be against us? Um, and Anthony replies that I, I took your hands. Like, I am, I am friends with you all, and I love you all. This is what he says. Upon this hope that you shall give me reasons... And then Brutus says, or else, or else were this a savage spectacle. Our reasons are f so full of good regard that were you, Anthony, the son of Caesar, you should be satisfied. So Brutus says, I will tell you the reasons. The reasons are so full of truth that, that you're going to agree with them. And Anthony says, that's all I want. All I want is an explanation, and I want to be able to speak at the funeral. And Brutus says, of course I will let you speak at the funeral. And then Cassius pulls him aside and says, don't let him speak at the funeral, you fool. Um, he's begging Brutus, like, don't let him speak at the funeral. And Brutus, again to Cassius, like an aside to Cassius, he says, don't worry, I will talk first, and I will only allow Anthony to talk afterwards, and Anthony will only speak about uh, Caesar as like his friend. He won't say anything against us. And he turns to Mark Anthony and he says, you will be able to speak at the funeral, but you can't speak anything ill of us. All you are going to do is speak about Caesar as your friend and that you loved him and, you know, all that stuff. And Anthony says, that's all I want. I desire no more. And then Brutus says, okay, and they all leave. And everybody leaves except for Anthony. And so Anthony is alone with Caesar's dead body. And Anthony delivers his famous, this might be the most famous soliloquy in the play. Anthony's whole countenance changes. His whole tone changes. And you can tell immediately that everything he's just said to the conspirators is bullcrap. He is not uh, shaking their hands and making friends. He intends to throw Rome into a civil war. He intends to take vengeance upon them. Uh, and he uses the he uses language that is so dark that it shows Anthony to be like the true villain of the play. Because what he says is this. He says, A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all parts of Italy blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war, all pity choked with custom of fell deeds and Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge with eight by his side come hot from hell shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war that this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. So what he says is, I'm going to start the worst civil war that's ever happened. Bloodshed is going to be so terrible that when mothers see their babies murdered, they'll just smile because it's so common. Um, he, he intends to 
not just kill the conspirators. He intends on starting a war that will just decimate Rome, and he's going to do it out of revenge. Um, and this is how you, this is the point in the play where you know that Mark Anthony is the villain of the play. And right after that, he teams up with Octavius, who is Caesar's nephew and Caesar's uh, only kind of true heir. And so Anthony and Octavius start to plot. And Cassius is proven to be right. And Cassius and Brutus um, go out, and Brutus delivers this long speech to the Romans, and he explains what he did and why he did it. He explains that Caesar wanted to be a tyrant. He said, I loved Caesar. It's not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? So he explains to the Romans that he killed Caesar to keep them free because under tyranny they all would have ended up slaves. And he ends his speech saying, Who is here so rude that he would not be a Roman? If any speak, for him I have offended. Who is here so vile that he would not love his country? If any speak, for him I have offended. I pause for a reply. So Brutus says, like, if anybody's mad at me, it's because they're not truly a Roman patriot. And, of course, the crowd automatically just agrees, because the crowd, the way Shakespeare writes the Roman crowd, the Roman people, the commoners, is people that just go whichever way the wind blows. They don't, they don't really think very critically. Whoever is the best orator is going to win them over or whoever speaks last is going to win them over. Because the first thing they say after his speech is uh, this, they're talking in the crowd, and they're like, man, this Caesar, Caesar was such a bad guy. Caesar was, you know, this terrible person. Uh, let's build a statue to Brutus. And then another one says, let's make Brutus Caesar. Uh, and then a fourth says, Caesar's better parts will be crowned in Brutus. And you can just see Brutus kind of face-palming because they don't understand what he's done or why he's done it. He explains the whole thing to them, and their response is, we're so glad you did this, let's make you king. Um, so what, what you see here is the problem, and the problem is the, the foolishness, the, gull the, the gullible Roman people. And Shakespeare isn't just saying that the Romans were gullible, Shakespeare is making an observation about the masses generally and how the masses are gullible and whoever kind of can can talk the best is going to win them over, um, even if it doesn't make any sense, of course. And so Brutus ends his speech and then he's going to let Mark Antony speak. And hilariously, somebody in the crowd is like, man, this Anthony guy better not say anything bad about Brutus because we really like Brutus. Um, and then Anthony starts his next speech, and that's the one that starts friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Which, it's funny because everything Anthony says, he says one thing, but then he turns it into something else. Um, he says he comes to bury Caesar and not to praise him, but the whole speech 
He just praises Caesar and how wonderful a guy Caesar was. And then he keeps underhandedly suggesting that Brutus and the other conspirators are lying. He keeps saying, he repeats over and over that Brutus told you that Caesar was ambitious. If that's true, it was a grievous fault. But every time he says it, if that's true, is this little bit of doubt. And then he keeps repeating, Brutus is an honorable man. But as the speech continues, every time he says it, it's more sarcastic. And it's more sarcastic. Until by the end of the speech, as you can guess, we find out that not only is Antony evil, he is also extremely skilled at turning a crowd. Because he turns the entire crowd against the conspirators, and he starts a riot. And Cassius and Brutus and uh, the rest of the conspirators are forced to flee. And they have to flee the city. Um, and Anthony and Octavius gain control of Rome. And then that's the end of, I think that's Act 3. Yeah, that's the end of Act 3. And then Act 4 starts... And you see Antony and Octavius and a third guy named Lepidus. And they are sitting around a table and they are planning who they're going to assassinate. They are naming off the people who are their political enemies and they're making a list, a hit list of people they're going to kill. And the list is long. The list is hundreds of names long and uh, there's all kinds of people on the list. Of course, the conspirators, but then people who aren't conspirators, people who are just maybe not in line with their political power. And uh, Cicero is on this list, and Cicero dies um, because of Antony, Octavius, and Lepidus. So they talk for a while, and then Lepidus leaves the room, and immediately you have Anthony. Anthony tells Octavius that Lepidus isn't fit to kind of rule with them, and he should just be kind of an errand boy, and he's not really good for anything. And so Anthony is Anthony and Octavius both are already trying to position themselves for, for power and push others out. And then we get to the second scene, and you have Brutus and uh, Cassius, and they're meeting out in the field because the war is coming, and they're trying to kind of build up their armies. And Cassius and Brutus have kind of started to butt heads again because Cassius is doing things that Brutus doesn't really like. Cassius has some generals that are a little bit unsavory. Um, one of them is taking bribes, and Brutus punishes that guy and kind of runs him off and his men. And Cassius is upset because they need every man they can get, and Cassius thinks that a guy taking bribes is just kind of the price you have to pay if you want to keep all your soldiers around. And Brutus, ever kind of altruistic, doesn't think that is right. He, he's 100% he's on this idea that we have to be completely chivalrous or none of this matters. So they argue and they argue, and uh, it gets pretty heated. They almost come to blows, and then they finally kind of uh, reconcile and and go on with it. And they decide they're still going to be allies and friends. And then Cassius finds out why Brutus is so angry. And he's so angry because he has heard the news of his wife Portia. And Portia has committed suicide. 
because she was back in Rome and she was living basically, you know, as a as a hostage, unable to leave and under the, the rule of Antony and Octavius. And she has drank, uh, it's either like she drank molten lead or she ate fiery coals. She, like the worst way to die that you could imagine is what she does. Um, she eats fire. And this is how she commits suicide. So obviously, this is why Brutus is a little bit touchy. Um, so they cry over over Portia for a while, and then they argue over how to to fight this battle. Again, Cassius wants to do one thing, and Brutus wants to do another. Cassius wants to stay and defend the the land where they are, and Brutus wants to advance and attack. Uh, Cassius wants to play defense. Brutus wants to play offense. Cassius explains that it's always better to play defense and more because that gives you an advantage. And uh, Brutus thinks if they wait any longer, they will lose numbers. And so, as has happened the entire time, Cassius agrees and goes along with what Brutus wants. And so they march out to uh, the field to do battle with... Um, with Antony and Octavius. And uh, the battle does not go in in great favor for them. Uh, Antony's army faces off against Cassius's, and Brutus faces off against Octavius. Brutus's army beats Octavius, but Antony's army pushes Cassius back. And Cassius uh, is kind of in retreat and near nearly going to get captured and he's decided that he's going he's not going to be captured he's if he if him or or brutus is captured they're going to be kind of paraded and used as political tools so they have both told each other they are not uh, they're not going to be captured they are going to they're going to die um and so what he does he sends a rider over over the hill to a group of soldiers that he can't tell whether they are Brutus's soldiers or whether they are the enemy. And the rider goes off, and another guy watches, and he watches the rider kind of get surrounded by a group of, of horsemen. And the implication is that he's been captured. And so Cassius, with uh, all of his hope gone, because he thinks all is lost, he asks his slave to kill him. Uh, and he offers the slave, he says, if you kill me, you'll have your freedom. And so the slave does it. The slave kills Cassius, even though he says he would rather remain a slave than do it, but he does it because it's the will of Cassius. And Cassius is killed by his slave. Sadly, the horseman returns, and it turns out it actually was uh, Brutus's group, not the enemy soldiers. And the very first thing they see is Cassius is dead and then Cassius's friend, Macella, kind of uh, also falls on his sword because he views this as kind of a, a no-win situation now. And then finally Brutus shows up. And uh, Brutus sees that his, his friend and his kind of uh, his partner in this whole thing is now dead. And he delivers this line that is very good because he, when he sees that Cassius is dead, he says, let me find it really quick. 
Um, he says, are yet two Romans living such as these? And he's talking about Cassius and Messella. He says, the last of all the Romans, fare thee well. It is impossible that ever Rome should breed thy fellow. So his his response to Cassius' death is, is like this is this is really the end of like uh, the true Roman patriot, and this is this is he kind of already knows it's the end, but then he turns to his kind of the rest of his army and says, "There's still a fight to be had here." So they go off and they continue their fight with Mark Antony's army, and they fight and fight and fight. Uh, everyone is killed except for Brutus and a few of his men. There's like five of them left. And Brutus goes to each one and begs them to to hold his sword while he runs onto it. And each one of them turns him down and in turn until finally uh, the last guy agrees to, to hold the sword. And Brutus runs onto the sword and uh, Brutus dies. And so both Brutus and Cassius follow through with their word to not be used as political pawns in this game that Antony and Octavius would play with them. And so the battle uh, is over. And Antony and Octavius are victorious. And what ends up going on, like historically, is Octavius ends up becoming the new Caesar. Now... But the last, the final two lines in the play are extremely important because they come from Anthony and they come from Octavius. And this is why I said you can learn everything you need to know about politics by, by reading this play. Because the last two lines almost seem kind of noble, at least Anthony's does. But you have to understand what Anthony is saying. He says, and he's talking about Brutus, he says, this was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He only in general honest thought and in common good all made one of them. His life was gentle and the elements so mixed up in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. So Anthony's reaction to Brutus's death is not like uh, he could care less that Cassius is dead, but he sees... Anthony does see uh, Brutus as an honorable man. But the thing that's that he gets wrong here is he says everybody else that killed Caesar, they just did it because they were envious of Caesar. And that is not... that That is Anthony's point of view. And you can tell by reading the whole rest of the play, that's not how Shakespeare writes it. This is just Anthony's vision. It's not Shakespeare's. It's this idea that, oh, everybody was just envious of Caesar because he was so great. No, the truth is the conspirators were, they assassinated Caesar because they were fighting against tyranny. But that's Anthony's take. Now, Octavius's is even more sinister. Octavius says, According to his virtue, let us use him with all respect and rights of burial, within my tents his bones tonight shall lie, most like a soldier ordered honorably, so call the field to rest, and let's away to the part of glorious of this happy day. Happy day. Oh my goodness. So, he says, according to his virtue, 
let us use him. And this is what Anthony Octavius planned to do. It's not that they're saying, oh, this Brutus was such a great hero, we should honor him because we think he's a great hero. They're saying everybody is going to look at Brutus as a hero, so we should honor him so that people look on us favorably. And this is what I mean by politics. These guys are, they don't give a rat's ass about Brutus or Brutus's uh, honor or Brutus's patriotism or everything that was Brutus, the true kind of heroic aspects of Brutus. They don't care anything about that. They're both ambitious, power-hungry politicians and they know that all the people are going to look at Brutus as a hero and they know that they can use that to consolidate their power if they treat him with like a good burial and hold him up as a hero. And that is the end of the play. Now, um, in a larger sense, what? let's kind of revisit what was driving the conspirators. I've went over this, but I want to kind of repeat it. All the conspirators, Cassius, Brutus, Casca, all these guys are doing what they're doing because they have this deep philosophical belief on governance and liberty. They all truly believe in the ideal of the Roman Republic. And this is an important point to make, and we all need to focus on this for just a little bit and kind of understand it. Because Shakespeare wrote this in 1600. Now the idea of this kind of ideal of the Republic form of governance had been largely dead in the world since the Roman Republic fell. But Shakespeare and other artists in Europe were starting to kind of breathe some romanticism back into this Republic idea. And they had to be kind of careful about it because, I mean, if you don't know this, 1600 in Europe, it's all kings and queens. So this idea of kind of showing a republic in a romantic light is a little bit of a, a revolutionary idea. Uh, so the Greeks invented democracy, and they tried it for a long time. In a lot of ways it worked, and it worked better than a monarchy, but in a lot of other ways it descended into like the rule of the mob. And when everyone gets an equal and immediate say uh, in society, the laws and the policies will eventually kind of turn into this tyranny of the majority over the rights and the beliefs of the minority. And this is what everybody learned from Greek democracy. And so the Romans later on, they took these Greek ideas and they kind of expanded on them. And they said, okay, this democracy thing kind of worked, but it really didn't. So how do we make it better? So they came up with this idea of the Commonwealth or the Republic. So instead of everybody coming to the town square and voting and arguing over every little thing, we have like each section of the country or state gets together independently and they vote on a representative. And then those representatives go to the smaller body and they represent the people from their regions. And you see this, I mean, in America today, this is, this is the Senate. Um, and the idea is that these representatives would be on kind of a higher class, more respected people from each of their regions. They're going to be a little smarter and more prudent than the average Joe, but they live alongside and they have the same interest of their neighbors in mind. 
and so the decisions would move a little more slowly, it would be a little less chaotic, and it wouldn't descend into mob rule like the democracy, which is a great idea. So you get the Roman Senate, and for a while it works really, really well. And Rome flourishes, and Rome becomes this really successful and rich uh, state. But after a while, all of that success and those riches start to breed bureaucracy and corruption. The Senate that had once been respected and effective is now kind of bloated and self-interested. The senators that used to have their neighbor's best interest in mind, in, in theory, now they have only their own interest in mind in practice. The Roman people become fat and rich and distracted by sports and pop culture, and they really stop paying attention to their leaders and their government, and this only makes the senators more corrupt and less accountable. And then finally, the republic is failing just like democracy did, but for different reasons. And this is what Cassius says in the play. It's what he points out, and it's what Shakespeare is trying to teach us. It's the Roman people's fault that the Republic fails. When the Republic falls after the assassination of Caesar, and for centuries after this, everybody goes, huh, well, Republics don't work very well. People are too stupid and evil and chaotic, and they have to be controlled, so I guess we'll go back to monarchies. And that's how the Western world operates, for the most part, for hundreds of years, up until the Reformation and the, the Enlightenment in Europe and people like Shakespeare start talking about the Romantic Republic idea again. Um, now, at the end of the day, you have this idea of the Republic and you have this opposite opposition idea, and that idea is the idea of Caesar and Antony. And Caesar and Antony have the same philosophy. And this philosophy is very simple. And the philosophy is that people are too stupid and evil and chaotic, and they have to be controlled and manipulated. So the people need a king or a Caesar for their own good. Now, this model endures through the modern world to you right now. That is... That is the brilliance of a great artist like Shakespeare. This story isn't just about Rome and the Romans. It's about England and the English. It is about America and Americans. It is about the world, and it's about humanity. And this struggle is still the same today as it was back then. You have the people with a belief in goodness and morality of democratic ideas and republic ideas, like your Cassiuses, your Brutuses. And then you have people with a belief in the goodness and morality of controlling and manipulating the people and the masses for their own good. And then you have the masses, the people, humanity, who over thousands of years have gone in circles from tyranny to struggle against tyranny until they achieve some democracies and republics, they achieve this freedom, and then from that freedom comes success and plenty and riches. And then because of that success, because of those riches, those same people's children become apathetic and lazy about their democracies and republics. And this leads them right back down the mountain until they are in a, a monarchy or some form of tyranny, an oligarchy. All their success and their riches go away once they enter that stage of tyranny. So, 
what happens when these mindsets struggle with one another. Well, I mean, if you paid attention to that last little bit, like you can see that, right? You can see that we have become kind of separated into these into these two camps where where one group thinks that we need more authoritarian power because everybody's just too stupid to take care of themselves. And then you see the other side that is based upon the the ideals of the Republican and the Democratic values, these ideas that the, the country was founded on, natural rights and free speech and freedom of the press and, you know, freedom to be armed and all of these things that the, the Founding Fathers thought. And the Founding Fathers draw all these ideas back through the Enlightenment, back through Shakespeare, back to to the Roman Republic. And that's what I'm talking about, this circle. I mean, you can see it. Hopefully you can see it if you're, if you're paying at least a little bit of attention. I started the whole podcast talking about Twitter. Why are the people on Twitter that are pissed that Elon Musk bought Twitter, why are they mad? They're not mad because they are going to be like banned and kicked off and silenced. They're not mad because they're going to be uh, shut down. They're mad because other people are going to get to say things that they don't like. And they're going to, their, their excuse is going to be, well, if you let people say whatever they want, then that might cause uh, violence or insurrections or, or whatever. But if you are standing on the opposing side to free speech, you are standing with, with historically, the people like uh, Caesar, like Mark Antony. You are standing on the side that says, uh, we, we can't allow people to have all this freedom because they don't know what to do with it. And if you're standing on that side and you are part of the masses, you are like the Roman people and you're gullible and stupid. And if you're standing on that side and you are one of the elite, you are like Anthony and you are like Octavius and everything you say to the crowd is all bullshit. And what you really believe is that you want power. You want that crown, that uh, coronet that Caesar was offered. Because the people who are truly in power of that side, they don't, they don't want what they say they want. They say things for political effect. They use people for political effect. They believe in their own power and their own ambition. So what can we learn? I guess we can learn to not be like that. Um, when I read this play, I take away that we are supposed to act like Cassius and Brutus. Um, even though it's a tragedy, even though they lose, that's who you're supposed to emulate. That's who the founding fathers were emulating when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. When, when Virginia put Six Semper Tyrannus on their state flag, uh, this idea of death to tyranny is something that we have to hold on to because if we give it up then you get the tyranny you you don't get you can't hold back tyranny without that bloody knife and that's where i'm going to leave you tonight thanks for listening i hope you have a good day thank you for your time and i'll catch you next time on the capo podcast good night